Welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. Brought to you by Ospin and Fresenius Carby. We are your hosts. I'm Bridie. And I'm Emily. And we are accredited practicing dietitians. We don't have all the answers. So each episode, we will deliver insightful conversations with our nutrition leaders who help us navigate the ever-changing world of clinical nutrition. This podcast takes you on a deep dive into evidence-based nutrition and what it means to be a nutrition professional. Together, we will find the answers to your questions, shine a spotlight on our nutrition colleagues, and help you create an impact in your nutrition career. In this season, we talk with leading nutrition professionals who share their expertise in oncology, enteral and parenteral nutrition. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare professional prior to providing or accepting any clinical interventions. In today's episode, we speak with Emma Osland about parental nutrition. Emma Osland is an advanced APD currently based at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. Throughout her career to date, Emma has worked across a broad range of practice areas and is recognised for her expertise in the area of nutrition support. Emma has taken a lead role in developing Ospin's Adult Trace Element and Vitamin Guidelines for Adults Requiring Parental Nutrition and the Ospin Quality Framework for Home Parental Nutrition Provision. She is an active member of the Ospin Home Parental Nutrition Model of Care Working Group, who are continuing to work towards laying the foundations required to establish a national model of care for home parental nutrition in Australia. Emma, welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. We're really looking forward to learning more about parental nutrition with you today. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Bridie. It's great to be here. So, Emma, for those people who may not have had much experience using parental nutrition, can you give us a brief overview of what it is and how it was developed? Absolutely. Um, And probably before I say anything further, I should just say that my experience in parental nutrition and actually all things dietetics um, is with adults. So all of my um, answers and comments today are going to be with that as my primary focus on my side, say otherwise. Um, All right. So PN, um, it is a fancy name for intravenous nutrition. So basically it just means that we're bypassing the gastrointestinal tract and taking the nutrients um, directly into the bloodstream. Um, So obviously for that to be safe and effective, the nutrients Nutritional components are broken down into their most basic forms of glucose, amino acids, and lipids. So they can be directly incorporated into the metabolic processes. Um, it's sometimes called TPN. And uh, I was going to say up front that I reckon we need to drop the T off the TPN because uh, T meaning total parental nutrition, uh, I think is a bit of a wrong idea. And, and certainly I see that in practice where people are thinking that the bags themselves are complete, um, whereas we know that for most bags that are used in hospitals in Australia, uh, the vitamins and the trace elements have to be added separately and so not total without those. Um, and the other thing is we don't ever really want somebody to be totally IV fed if there's not an absolute contraindication for some other kind of oral or enteral provision. We know that that's much better for the gut. We know that's much better for reducing complications. So, um, yeah, I think PN is probably a, a better term than, than total. Um, You also asked how it was developed. Uh, Wow, it's a really interesting story, actually, Um, probably one that needs its own podcast to go through in in full full detail. But it's relatively recent in the sense that it's only been developed since the 1960s. Um, So Stanley Dudrick is probably the best known person associated with its its development. And they went through this interesting process of pioneering um, the, the components of it, which we just take for granted now that we've got them all commercially prepared, but they had to go through and develop safe infusions for 
glucose for, for um, the proteins which they broke down from fibrate hydrolysates um, were able to demonstrate the safety of PN in little beagles to start with before they started using it on humans. Um, and I guess the, the, the rest is, is kind of history from there. I really enjoy hearing the, the history of how TPN, or I will say PN now, has developed. Um, yeah. It's Yeah, it's really interesting to just hear the history of it all. So um, thanks for sharing that. No worries. There's actually some really good review articles um, available if anybody is interested in, in reading those. Just um, Google or PubMed them. There's probably a dozen or so that come up that will we'll fill you in on the details. For sure. And we can put those in the show notes as well. Cool. Emma, can you tell us more about which patients require TPN and what the benefits of using or PN or what the benefits of use, using parenteral <laughs> nutrition are? So I've really thrown you off by taking out the tea. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, no, I wholeheartedly agree, actually. I think um, but we, 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 we usually do say TPN because to the MDT, that is what is what it's it known is. as, isn't it? But um, yeah. yes, I think PN, I mean, because there are other forms, supplemental or, you know, HPN, SPN, we, we've got a range of acronyms for sure. So look, I guess um, PN is what we use to nourish somebody when their digestive tract is not functional or accessible. So we always go with the, the theory that um, enteral is better if we can use it, but on those occasions where we can't, then, then that's where we go. So those patients would be um, people who have got a problem with the motility of their digestive tract, whether that be something temporary like a, a blockage or an ileus after surgery, um, or whether it might be problem with the functional absorption side of things. So somebody who's got mucosal damage or um, have had an alteration to their gut length where they're no longer able to absorb enough fluid, whether that be a temporary or a permanent um, thing. Um, the other side of it is when the digestive tract is functional but not accessible. And that can be for um, individual reasons, such if there's been anatomical changes or if there's been um, problems with I guess on an organisational level, if you can't get a nasogejunal tube placed, if nasogastric feeding's not um, recommended in that particular clinical context. Great, thank you. And what are the benefits of using PN in these types of patients? Well, benefits is they get they have a nutrition source they wouldn't have otherwise had. So if we sort of sort of harking back to our conversation around the, the history of it prior to you know the 1960s or 1970s, patients who were in that situation had no source of nutrition available to them. I mean, even enteral feeding wasn't used routinely back at that point in time. So I, I think the, the the main benefit is that we're able to prevent malnutrition or at least prevent the development of it or the progression of it in, in that patient situation. Great, thank you. And Emma, can you tell us about some of the problems that are associated with parenteral nutrition and, and are there circumstances that we should avoid using parenteral nutrition too? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, PN these days is actually a really safe procedure. We've got a lot of safeguards in that weren't um, available to us even probably 20 or 30 years ago uh, in terms of the solutions that we have, the lipids that we have available to us now, the better line management that's being used um, to provide the parental nutrition. So by and large, it's, it's safe. And I'd say with, you know, maybe with a few um, caveats of precautions around people who've got severe liver or renal problems that there's really no major contraindications or any patient group that you wouldn't necessarily use it with unless they had a um, say a, a sensitivity or an allergy to one of the components um, but it, it does have some problems associated with it uh, some of it historical because of the way that overfeeding was done so routinely back in the olden days uh, they used to think that more is more and as a result people would be overfed and have hyperglycemia and liver problems associated with those um, th those issues are still present potentially given the individual patient circumstances and I think 
Uh, liver problems are probably one of the, the ones that we would see in longer-term patients rather than short-term patients. So I think I could probably retire if I had a dollar for every time on a PN round about day three of somebody on a P who's just started on PN and, and all of a sudden their liver has liver functions have changed somewhat. And the team's like, oh my goodness, the PN's doing it. You've got to look at the broader picture. This patient's if they're on PN, it's because they've got some pretty significant medical things happening. Uh, you really want to look at, you know, their enterohepatic circulation has been affected by whatever their indication for PN is. They're probably now on IV antibiotics or IV medications, which are a lot harder on the liver to process as well. So you've really got to look at the, the, the broader element of, of that before attributing the problems to the, to the PN itself. Um, the other major issue, and I think it's probably a bigger issue than the metabolic ones, particularly in short-term patients, uh, is the line complications. So the line through which we're providing the PN can be a source of infection um, for patients, particularly if, if uh, line handling issues are a, are a problem. But also like nasogastric tubes and other feeding devices, they're prone to blockages, they're prone to breakages and dislodgements. So it's the same sort of problems that we see in other areas of nutrition support that we have to be mindful of. I guess the difference is it's going directly into the heart in most cases. So the risks are a little bit higher. Yeah, great. So I guess, as you said, um, as all those sort of medical management side of things have advanced, the, the safety and the effectiveness of parental nutrition has, um, has improved as well with that. But keeping in mind those particular renal and liver patients, should we start TPN in those patients? Or is it just more that we should be aware if we do start that things might go um, uh, awry a bit more quickly? I think it's just a matter of monitoring. So I wouldn't withhold PN from somebody who has an indication for it if they had those issues under normal circumstances. Obviously, every patient is individual and you have to take it on an individual basis in, in conjunction with the multidisciplinary team who's involved with the, the overall care because uh, I guess nutrition is just one component of the bigger picture for that patient at that time. Um, but, yeah, certainly I wouldn't withhold nutrition and I would be just monitoring closely, particularly of, around the areas of concern, whether it be liver, renal or, or both. Great, thank you. With some of the considerations you've just mentioned, do you, are you an advocate for multidisciplinary PN rounds? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that's probably the biggest, um, the biggest evidence base we have in parental nutrition is that we know that multidisciplinary team management is by far the safest, the most effective and the most efficient um, and cost-effective as well for the bean counters. We love that stuff. Um, yeah, definitely MDT all the way. And who should be on the team? Ah, good question. Um, so some form of medical, and I recognise that every organisation and hospital has a different uh, case mix of, of medical physicians and intensive care doctors and gastroenterologists who would potentially be involved. Um, I don't actually think it matters which medical discipline is involved as long as there is some medical oversight. Uh, dietetics, obviously, for the prescribing of the PN pharmacy for ensuring that the provision and also the, the pharmaceutical and the medication management is consistent and appropriate uh, for the patient uh, and also nursing to make sure the line management is, is well done. And I always involve the ward staff as well because I think they are key to making sure it's happening uh, safely Absolutely. and the way that we prescribe it. That's right. They're, they're on, on the ground day and night, aren't they? And so the, the team come and go, Absolutely. but it's great to have them included. And in terms of composition, can you tell us about what the formulas contain and are there any nutrients that are missing? Yeah, sure. So um, like we talked about before, the macronutrients are in their most basic form. So glucose, amino acids and lipids. Uh, we need to add the, the vitamins and the trace elements into them separately in most cases. If I mean, in, in any case, actually, it's just whether it happens at the hospital, the ward or at a compounding facility level. I guess when I always think of PN as a little bit like 
central in the sense that you have different products that will have different compositions. Some will be higher protein, some will be electrolyte modified, some will have different lipid forms depending on which way you're looking at it. I guess the difference with PN is you've, you've actually got less options to choose from because of the, the nature of it as a, as a treatment. Uh, the other consideration we have too is we've got different concentrations depending on where we're infusing the PN. So by and large, in most facilities, it will be a central parenteral solution. So a very high osmolarity uh, solution that's designed to be put through a central venous access device to, to go into the heart. Um, but we've also got the option in some places of peripheral PN, uh, which allows us to use a lower osmolarity, or well, a relatively lower osmolarity, I wouldn't say low osmolarity, solution into a larger peripheral vein. Um, and that just gives us some different options uh, for patients who may not be able to have a central venous access device placed or who may not need it for a long period of time or for some facilities where it's really hard to get a PIC or, or another um, more permanent CVAD. Great, thank you. Yeah, I think the um, getting access is often one of the biggest holdups, isn't it? So absolutely, potentially using peripheral PN as a bridge is it's not something we do where I work, but it, it's something I'd be interested definitely in. Yeah, and I think it's a really an emerging area in Australia because we've only just recently in the last couple of years had access to shelf-stable PPN solutions, which is, I think, a real game changer for, for the use of those. And just circling back to your the second part of your question, are we missing any other vitamins or trace elements or any other nutritional components in the PN? I think the short answer is, is yes, um, in the sense that we do have our multi-trace elements and multivitamin components that are added in, but there are a lot of elements that I guess we're recognising in human nutrition are important, if, if not necessarily essential or maybe conditionally essential. But a lot of those things we're still developing, we're still understanding, and, and currently they're not incorporated in parenteral solutions. Even things that are recognised in the, um, like the RDIs as being important, like choline, uh, there's not, that's not actually part of any of the multivitamin or micronutrient preparations. There is some of it in the, the soy lipid component of the, the IV lipids, but it, it's really hard to know if it's an adequate amount from that perspective. So I think over the... In the future, we'll probably find that our PN practices and our pre PN products will evolve and continue to change as well, sort of catching up with the evolving knowledge in that area. I think we have to remember that nutrition science is really new. We only isolated vitamins in 1911, um, so it's 110 years ago. We're, we're still a very much an emerging science, and I think we will see changes that are consistent with that over time as well. Absolutely. Still so much more research to be done. Absolutely. And Emma, you um, have done extensive work in this particular area in micronutrients and multivitamins um, and trace elements, but some organisations will provide those um, in the parental nutrition bag, whereas others provide them separately. They hang on a different, hang separately to the TPN. What is the best practice for that provision? That is a great question, Bridie, um, and one that we actually don't really know the answer to. <laughs> um, so essentially the decision as to whether to give it as a sideline or to add it to the bags ultimately comes down to an organisational decision, um, depending on what facilities they have available on site or what storage space they have if they're going to order in pre-compounded bags with those vitamins already added into them. Uh, so, look, I think there's pros and cons to both sides of that type of administration. Uh, the theory has traditionally been it's better to run the, the micronutrients alongside the macronutrients so that they can be incorporated simultaneously. That's what happens with food. Why would we not do that with PN? The downside of that, though, in, in the sense of PN is that, I mean, the PN solutions, we think of them as food, but they're actually just this big chemical mess of stuff in a bag. 
And what we find is that particularly the antioxidant vitamins are very, very prone to denaturation by some of the trace elements. So if you have those added to the bags a long time before you're actually going to administer them, you might find that you have lower levels of some of those vitamins than you're expecting. Um, so that is a potential downside of that. Um, the flip side is if you run the, P, run the micronutrients as a sideline, ultimately you're going to have to run them slower than the, the PN infusion itself. Uh, so, you know, between one and four or six hours, depending on which product you're using. Um, so the theory there is that potentially you can hit the renal excretion load and you might just end up peeing out a portion of your, your dose that you think the patient's getting. Uh, and usually you can tell if this has happened, if they've got bright yellow urine in the urine bag next to them. So, you know, that's a, that's a potential issue to consider as well. And while we don't have any data about how vitamins are affected with that, it's all kind of theoretical. Uh, Susie Ferry did a great study a couple of years back um, in her ICU population looking at um, the speed at which she gave trace element solutions to patients, so either one hour, over one hour or over 10 hours. And it was really encouraging to find from that, even in a critically ill population, that the, there's really no significant difference between the excretion rates of those. So I think that probably gives us more confidence than we've had in this area, that we probably can run it as a sideline quite safely without having any losses in that sense. Like I said, we don't know if that's true for vitamins. The metabolism of vitamins is going to be quite different. So that remains to be seen. Look, I think, in my opinion, based on the evidence that we have available at the moment, I don't actually think it matters how you give them. You just need to give them daily. Yeah, sure. And really about knowing how we do things at different organisations and being aware of the, the pros and cons of each method and, um, and troubleshooting if we need to. Yeah, exactly right. And Emma, what about vitamin K? There's some debate about around vitamin K and iron as well. And I just wondered if you could comment on that. <laughs> sure. Um, there's another evidence-free zone in PN. Um, like so much, we, we aim for evidence-based practice, but we just don't have the data for a lot of these things we want to be making clinical decisions about. Um, so vitamin K is one that has traditionally had some concerns around it, mostly because of its role in clotting and co coagulopathies. So in acutely unwell patients, they may be on you know, blood thinners and things that you don't necessarily want vitamin K being given as part of, or if they're acutely unwell, it might co um, confound some of their other clinical work. So a lot of, a lot of areas will withhold vitamin K uh, as part of their PN regimens. Um, and then if we look at the home population, again, there's no consistent practice within that. Vitamin K is really key to the um, bone development and bone health. So some of us will, will add it to our home PN solution. Some of us don't. Uh, it, it really just is a, is a matter of, I guess, personal opinion and how you interpret the evidence that's, that's out there around that. Um, it's a bit the same with iron. Uh, if we think about how iron functions in the body, particularly in acutely unwell patients, we know anybody with an acute phase response, their iron or their serum iron levels will drop. Uh, and we believe that's probably uh, uh, an evolutionary process to sort of try and help fight the, the, the infection or the inflammation that's going on physiologically at the time. And so the theory has been, well, maybe it's not a good idea to give supplemental iron in those cases. Um, but again, it's, it's all based on theory. There's no hard evidence around, around what, that, what the best way forward is. And I think, again, I sound like a bit of a... Um, like I'm on repeat, but individual assessment of the patient and making those decisions based on, on that particular situation that you're dealing with at the time. Great, thank you. And uh, yeah, I guess as, as we were saying um, earlier, it's just more research is, is required, but it's great to hear your opinion on that um, in, in the absence of good, solid evidence-based guidelines. I hope one day so, you'll have them. 
So Emma, once we've started our patients on parenteral nutrition, what should we be monitoring? Should we check things like liver function tests or lipids in the blood? I know you've touched on a little bit of these um, already. So I think the answer to that question probably depends on how long the PN duration is at the time we're talking about. So our approach would be very different to a short-term patient versus a long-term patient. Uh, I, I think if we're looking at blood tests like your liver functions and your lipids, my question is always how would this blood test change my management of the patient? Um, if the answer is it's probably not going to, then I probably wouldn't do it. Um, the the short-term patients, obviously, when we first start somebody on PM, we're, we're monitoring not just their electrolytes, but also you know their metabolic response to it. So their blood sugars, their, their liver functions. Some sites look at lipids out our at the Royal Brisbane, we stopped doing that a couple of years ago because we recognised it was not actually changing anything that we were doing in our practice. And for most people, if they had high lipids, it was because the uh, lipid, sorry, the PN infusion hadn't been ceased before the blood sample was taken. So you were getting a mix of the PN solution and, and the blood, which wasn't very helpful. Uh, but in short-term patients, in addition to, to those elements, you want to be looking at their, their weight, not because we're expecting to reverse whatever nutritional issues they had quickly, but we're looking at their fluid balance because that's another really big consideration in a, in an unwell patient who's receiving PN. Are they able to incorporate the fluids that are being provided appropriately? And they're not just gaining a couple of kilos every couple of days because that's a, obviously a warning sign that we're, they're fluid overloaded. So yeah, that's a, that's a short-term patients is how I would see that. Longer-term patients, uh, we tend to draw back on the surveillance unless there's problems that we're monitoring or unless we've made major changes to their, to their PN regimens. Uh, we would look at their weight actually for a uh, nutritional change, maybe also looking at some non-weight-based anthropometric measures like maybe mid-arm muscle circumference or you know, some sites use grip strength and those sort of functional measures as well. Uh, when it comes to micronutrients, since we've just been talking about those, uh, in I wouldn't do those in, in acute patients because we know that the acute phase response makes a lot of those blood tests quite unreliable in, in their levels. But in a longer term patient, I definitely would be doing that at least annually and any time I've made a major change to their PN solution or if they've had a major change to their clinical situation because that also happens at times. And in terms of estimating energy requirements, I know that this is Pandora's box. <laughs> so I guess my, I'll, I'll phrase the question um, and in asking how you like to estimate and I realise there'll be lots of different um, <laughs> methods and preferences on this, but how do you estimate patients requiring PN's energy requirements? I think that's a great question, Emily. And, and you're right, it is a Pandora's box. How do we estimate anybody's nutritional requirements, let alone if they're on PN? Look, my personal approach is that the predictive equations that we are ultimately uh, relying on, unless we've got indirect calorimetry, um, are all based on antral requirements. So I feel like we need to make an adjustment for somebody who's on parenteral nutrition. So if we think about what goes into, um, a rest into an energy expenditure assessment, about 10% of that's probably the thermogenic effect of food. So that's the, the energy that's required to chew the food, to digest the food, to absorb the food, which obviously isn't happening in somebody who's on PM. So I, I take a more conservative uh, approach and, and drop it by at least 10% um, for, for that consideration as well. I guess the other thing is that the gastrointestinal tract, even when it's functioning optimally, isn't 100% efficient for, um, in that you know, you're not absorbing everything that you're eating. Whereas we assume that when you infuse a PN solution into somebody that 100% of that is being incorporated into the metabolic processes. So that, that's, that's kind of my approach. I take a very conservative approach to PN because we are bypassing a lot of the physiological safeguards that would normally be in place when we're using the digestive tract. Uh, and because we do 
a lot of the patients I work with are long-term patients, so I really take a take it very seriously looking after their their liver and metabolic function. So I'd rather yeah, take that approach to it. I think they're great tips because at the end of the day, whichever method clinicians are using, it's really interesting to hear your insights around the thermogenic then the proportion of the ER that is related to the thermogenic effect of food. Um, in terms of getting to target rate, do you have any tips or what's the procedure in your hospital? Uh, in our hospital, we basically just start at goal, um, unless there's a, good, a really good clinical reason not to. Uh, and the reason for that is we have really good monitoring systems in place. We know that patients are going to be getting bloods frequently after the initiation of PN, and our teams are really quite on the ball in terms of replacing anything that's a little bit off. So I'm, I can do that with a lot of confidence. Um, I think probably the conventional wisdom has been to sort of start slow because there's been concerns about refeeding syndrome and, and how that might impact somebody who's on PN um, as well as other nutrition support modalities, I guess. But the um, there was a study that came out earlier this year from the UK that was really interesting that looked at the, the way that you start somebody on PN. They looked at using full rate of PN versus half rate of PN for the first 48 hours and then back to full rate at that 48 hour mark. Um, and what they showed was that there was actually no difference. Both groups had, or a proportion of both groups had changes in their electrolytes, but there was really no difference between them and how you started them. I mean, admittedly, the study had a few recruitment problems, um, which might affect the, well, will affect the power of the study. But I think it really does give us some food for thought about our traditional processes of going slow uh, when maybe we don't need to with our contemporary PN practices. Yeah, that's right. And you may not know, but off the top of your head, did they include patients who were identified to be at risk of repeating syndrome? Do you know? They did. That was actually part of the inclusion all criteria. Wow. So um, they, they avoided anybody who was at the severe end of the NICE guidelines risk, but anybody who was sort of uh, at risk was included in that. Mm, fantastic. Yeah, it's a good study mm. to, to review. Mm. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of part one of this episode. We look forward to you joining us for part two and further insights next episode. Thank you for listening to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast, brought to you by Osman and Fresenius Carby. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and colleagues. To keep up to date with all the latest from Osman, you can head over to our website at www.ospen.org.au or email us at podcast at 